This is The Big Electron. I'm Jackie. I'm Adam. I'm Madeline. And I'm Anahita. Thank you for subscribing, and please rate us on iTunes. Is it true that you can leap over a chair from a standing position? It depends on the size of the chair. Uh, I'll cheat a little bit. The Big Electron. The Big Electron. So I have cheated very badly, you see. Out in the cosmos, that can swallow entire stars. Nothing is more seductive. Yeah! Are you feeling it now, Mr. Krabs? Are you feeling it? Of course you feel it. Now, what do you want to know? What I want to know is what's going on. I think it's time to blow this thing, get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, it's jam. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a great show for you tonight. Let's get right to it. Welcome to The Big Electron. Thanks for listening. I'm Jackie. I'm Adam. And I'm Anahita. Hey, hello. And we're on the radio. <laughs> like right this second. <laughs> Welcome back from our extended break. I hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I know I did. It was fun. Yeah. There was food. Lots of food. <laughs> well, I think we have a fantastic interview um, <clears throat> for our Welcome Back episode. And with us today, we have Dr. Jim Schiffbauer from the Department oh, from the Department of Geology. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. And just a reminder that if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so by uh Calling or texting here on studio at 573-882-8262. You can also find us on Facebook where we are, The Big Electron, or you can email us at thebigelectron.kcou at gmail.com. And if you're joining us from the podcast, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And Please if you're joining us. us from my parents' house, hi, Mom. <laughs> also, hi, Dad. Okay, uh, Jim, so why don't we start by, um, why don't you tell us how you got into science? Uh all right. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a tough question um, because I've kind, of, I've kind of always been interested in science. Um, since when I was a young kid, I was, um, you know, it, science was always something that was there that, that I was interested in and read about and participated in as much as I could. Um, but in, 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 in the field that I'm in, that's kind of been uh, a random, a random walk, if you will. Uh, it's been a, a, a bit of a strange path. Um, so I had started in undergrad as a biology major, and um, it, I kind of fell into the ecology evolution track rather than the uh, pre-med track uh, at West Virginia University. Um, but I really didn't have any interest in being a paleontologist at all. It, this was not <laughs> something that was anywhere near my radar. Um, <laughs> so you didn't watch Jurassic Park and just know? No, no, it wasn't. I mean, nothing like that. I, I Like every kid, I had a, a passing fascination with dinosaurs. Um, mm -hmm. I think every kid does at some point in time. Um, but for me, it, it, it really didn't hit me until significantly later in my career that this was something that I was interested in. And not, not only was I interested in it, but it was... Um, something that I enjoyed reading, something that I enjoyed um, learning about and asking questions about. Um, it was probably uh, second semester of my freshman year, I took uh, uh, an honors paleontology course. I think it was called um, The History of Life um, with Dr. Tom, Tom Kammer. Um, and it was, it was incredible because he had assigned a whole bunch of uh, external readings to kind of mm -hmm. keep up with the lecture material. Um, and part of that class was about Precambrian life, uh, which is what I focus on now. Um, and I had absolutely no interest in reading these papers. It was <laughs> microbial fossils and strange animals and things like that, 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 you know, it, I, I looked at these and I said, no, I, I don't, I don't care about these. But then I got fascinated when I was reading it and it was, um, I still remember the paper. It was that when I took the course, it was 1997 um, and a paper had just come out about four years prior, mm -hmm. um, by Bill Schaff, and it was describing the earliest fossils on the planet. And it was unbelievable. I, I read that paper 
five, six, seven times. Mm. Just, just, just had to keep reading it. Um, but even then, I, <laughs> that didn't start this this paleontology direction. That was just something that was kind of there in the back of my head, and with all this other collected knowledge, um, I guess over the the course of my undergrad ed, um, I went to do a master's in marine biology. And um, when I was doing that, I was working on um, microfossils, but they were really subfossil. And when I when I say subfossil, I mean very recent. We were looking at um, storm records effectively by looking at um, uh, 4AM populations, 4AM anifera populations um, in sediments from Florida Bay <clears throat> in South Florida. Um, and he's uh, just like <laughs> giggling over here. <laughs> My hometown. <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, it was uh, that, you know, I was picking through all of these little tiny calcareous fossils um, and that was really the bulk of my master's work um, that and looking at them with um, advanced analytical techniques like transmission electron microscopy and scanning electron microscopy. Um, but uh, when I was doing that work, when I was, when I was writing up my, my thesis for my master's um, that's when I kind of started diving back into that literature again. Um, and I decided after teaching high school, a year in South Florida. I taught at Miramar High, if you're familiar with Miramar. Um, but I taught marine biology there and intro biology. And I decided after a year of that, that I wanted to go back and get my PhD. Um, wait, wait, you teach, you taught marine biology in high school? I did. Oh, I that's, did. I grew up in the desert. So like that's <laughs> never a class that we would have had. I mean, yeah. ge geographically, it makes sense. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, we were, you know, six, seven miles from the uh huh. Wasn't too bad. Um, okay. More but yeah, <laughs> it, it, I kind of it was weird. After that, I I stumbled into um, the the PhD program that I went to, um, and uh, it, I had applied kind of several different places. Had a couple of interviews, um, uh, but it you know when when I chatted with who became my PhD advisor, um, that was the real. That was I knew mm -hmm. that that was the guy I needed to work for. Um, it was just, that's where I needed to be. And I went there and I think I did all right. <laughs> um, that's but that's, that's, that's how I got here. It's, it's, there was not a direct path. This was not something that I had planned, um, you know, in high school. Or anything. Mm -hmm. And I think for that reason, this is a really important story to tell because I think that um, a lot of people see science as just, I knew exactly what I was going to do from the time I was three and I was successful at it and I never stumbled. And you show like your story shows that you, you found a path to where you should be. When, when I went to college and this is kind of a, a weird story. Um, I had initially thought that, well, kind of my plan was to be a forensic pathologist. Hmm. So I wanted to study how and why people died um, or were murdered or terrible things. And in a roundabout way, I still do that, but I do that 550 million years in the past. <laughs> I still study how the things that I study died and how they became fossils. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, you know, it, you'll hear paleontologists all the time tell you that, oh, I, I knew, I knew from the age of five that I wanted to be a paleontologist because I love dinosaurs. And now that's not me. <laughs> it's not me at all. That definitely makes me think and this is not going to be a serious comment at all. My apologies in advance. But um, it definitely makes me think there's a good mystery novel series waiting for for you. If you ever choose to go into writing, you know, right. it's just like this trilobite was murdered. It's one of our recent papers, believe it or not. My, uh, <laughs> really? my I, I must hear about this. What my is, my master's it? student, who's now a PhD student with me, when, when she was doing her thesis, Tara, um, she, that's one of her, that's the paper that came out. It's... This we were looking at trilobites in southeastern Missouri <laughs> and what they were killing. Oh my it's, gosh! It's pretty cool. <laughs> oh, so the trilobite was the killer. Yes. Twist ending. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. That's amazing stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and Adam, I, I think we should say that Adam did not talk to Jim before about this. Like, no, we, we met about half hour ago. <laughs> yeah. that, was, that was not a posed question. <laughs> So could you tell us a little bit more about what your lab specifically studies? Oh, yeah. It's, um, 
we study things that are fun, I mm-hmm. think. Um, That's always good. Yeah. It's, you <laughs> Especially know, when you're a grad student. <laughs> you want to be studying something fun. Yeah. I, so, again, not to, not to keep referencing to all other paleontologists and, and kind of shoeboxing them all together, but... Uh, a lot of paleontologists ha- have a specific time frame that they focus on mm-hmm. or a specific animal that they focus on mm-hmm. or whatever. It doesn't have to be an animal. It can be plants, whatever. Um, my group really, we're, we're kind of all over the board. We, we study things as old as, um, the oldest we're working on right now is about 600 million. Um, and the youngest we're working on is modern stuff from the Bahamas. Um, oh, that's awesome. You know, yeah. So, I mean, it, we, we range the, the entire gamut of, of animal life in through geologic time. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, what kind of the way I've always approached this is if the preservation has something cool about it, if there's something neat about the way the fossil was preserved, that's what I want to study. We, I consider us, my group, uh, to be taphonomists. It's a weird word. Um, it really just means the study of anything that happens from the death of the organism to the time it becomes a fossil. So really, in a nutshell, we study how fossils are preserved and what that can tell us about their biology. Um, can it help us fit them into the, the tree of life? Um, can it, you know, elucidate something that we, we didn't know about them before? Um, so we've studied things like fossil bird feathers. We've studied things like trilobite traces, eating worms. We've studied, you know, it's all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. We look at everything we can. It's neat. So, so how do you, so, so you mentioned something that, that caught my attention. You said you study from where something dies to where it becomes a fossil. Yep. So that's why you're studying obviously, but like, what's the process like? Like what is, what defines a fossil that it's not when the thing dies? Okay, so, <laughs> so t- it's it typically the. I mean, when we look at the majority of the fossil record, we look at shells, we look at bones, we look at teeth, mm-hmm. um, things that the animal mineralizes in life. We call that process biomineralization. Um, they do it. the The animal does the work for you. Um, it effectively makes something that can stand the the rigors of geologic time and alteration all on its own while it was alive. Mm-hmm. So when that thing dies, but there at the same time, I, I should back up. There's, there are tons of processes that are going to scatter and destroy those pieces of information. Um, weathering for instance is mm-hmm. one that, that gets rid of shelly materials, um, chemical weathering, uh, physical weathering as well. Um, scavenging by other animals, things that eat, animals that are dead, like uh, vultures today are, are scavengers. They go through and pick apart the animal and that scatters those bones. It moves them around. So a lot of times when we find those those shelly bits of the record, we still find them kind of dispersed. It's not all together. Um, but my group, typically, we, we focus on what, what are called... Uh, another word that's going to... I told you, jargon is terrible in my field. Um, Conservat Lagerstatten. Uh, oh, you're just making that one. No, out. I'm not. I'm really not. <laughs> and we're we're really all not. grad students in, in various sciences, and that's impressive. <laughs> yeah. That one right there. Wait, wait, uh, can, you, can you repeat that again? Conservat Lagerstätten. Yeah. Lagers. That sounds German. German. Yeah, okay. It's very German. Um, and it really, if you dissect that word, it or the two words, it means conservation storage place. Hmm. And what hmm. what those deposits really are um, are sites where we have soft tissues preserved. Um, where you have soft tissues are hard to get into the fossil record. It's um, those are the things that go away mm-hmm. by, by the things we just mentioned, weathering by um, uh, things that like to eat tissues, um, all of that kind of stuff. Those are processing. Not only that, but the, the your cells themselves have are programmed to kind of Die. destroy themselves mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. after the, the organism is dead. Um, autolytic decay is what we call that. Um, and then certainly bacterial decay. And thankfully, the, the earth is really good at cleaning up dead bodies. It's, these processes exist uh, for a reason. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we'd be knee-deep in squirrel carcasses. and That's kind of gross. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> If you want to picture that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's kind of, you know, it, we, we look at the, the processes that the earth didn't do a very good job, um, where those soft tissues for whatever reason, 
are mineralized. Um, there's some type of mineralization process that, that occurs that captures that in the fossil record. And there are a lot of them. Um, it's, I should say it is rare, but there are a lot of these deposits, rare compared to the Shelley deposits. Mm -hmm. I suppose there's been a lot of time available for this to happen, at least occasionally. Mm -hmm. A lot of time. Yeah. I mean, so. the, the entirety of the Precambrian record, and the, I mean, if we think about the geologic time scale, um, the origin of the Earth is about 4.6 billion-ish, somewhere around there. For about 4 billion years, we didn't have any animals. I mean, the first animal record that we have in the fossil record is 600 million years old. Um, so we've got a lot of time that the only things that existed are single-celled organisms. Um, if that, right? I mean, prior to 3.8, we don't have too much evidence that even single-celled things existed. Um, so that, that pretty much the entirety of that Precambrian record, what we know about life from that time is because of these types of exceptional preservation. Um, so a lot of microbes that we see, a lot of um, early eukaryotes, things like that. Even the early animal record we know because of exceptional fossil uh, fossilization. Mm. Um, because the first animals didn't make shells. They didn't make bones. They were pretty simple probably, like worms and jellyfish and sponges if you want to call them animals. So the shell or other types of things that are more easily preserved just weren't didn't weren't existing. They didn't until exist later on. Yeah. So the earliest record of shells that we have in the animal world, there were some smaller single-celled things that made made some shells before this. But the earliest shelly record that we have from animals is 550. Um, so right prior to the beginning of the Cambrian period, which is where the majority of my work falls. And that's where like the, the sort of classically defined fossil record yep. starts, like yep. the hard-shelled or hard-bodied yep. creatures. And, and again, yeah. you said that was how many years ago? 550 million. So a while. <laughs> it's, it's been a long time. That just yeah. blows my mind. So, But then there's this whole, this whole world of four billion years before that, mm -hmm. most of it with some sort of life mm -hmm. or, or you know, single-celled or otherwise about. that... Yeah. yeah, I mean, we, we still have a, a pretty pretty nice record from that time. We can still piece together the story uh, of life, of the history of life from the Precambrian. We know approximately when eukaryotic cells evolved. We know approximately when single-celled bacteria evolved, that kind of stuff. We, we, we have that kind of timeline reiterated by the fossil record and also by molecular studies. But, yeah, it's um, – but, yeah, the, the – the, the, the real bulk of the fossil record, what you think of as the fossil record, the history of life or the, the phanerozoic, um, that the history of animal life, that's 550-ish onward. So, go ahead. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit more about, um, or, or rather guide us through the process of getting your sample to transporting it to the lab and then analyzing <laughs> it in the lab. That's exactly what I was going to ask. Because I'm like I'm 550 million years ago and you're like handling this thing and it's, I don't well, know, I mean, it, it looks scary. I know it lasted time, but it yeah, won't that's, last me. <laughs> that's, that's what you got to think about too. Like it, a lot of these things, yeah, they're, they're delicate. They're, they're, you know, when you look at it, there's some delicate features preserved and whatnot, but I mean, they've lasted 550 million years. Right. They're, you know, the Earth's beat them up quite a bit. Um, it, nothing that we're going to do is really even more damaging than what they've already been through. Um, but, yeah, so it, it, it's kind of sample dependent. It depends on the, the type of material that we're looking at as to what we do. Um, mm -hmm. So a lot of material that I work on, I actually borrow from other people. Um, <laughs> oh, that's even scarier. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> right, right. Um, and... You know, I've had people that, that pack materials in, you know, multiple layers of packing to make sure that it's not damaged. But then recently I borrowed some stuff um, from England <laughs> that was literally just sent in an envelope. Oh, my gosh. It's perfectly fine. And it's it's 510-ish million years old. So newer. Yeah, yeah, a little bit newer. But, you know, oh it was gosh. really strange when I when I went to my mailbox in the department and there's just... A single envelope, like not even like a padded envelope, but an envelope with a piece of the Burgess Shale in it. It was kind of shocking to me. Um, but yeah, so 
from that point, from where, however we get it, um, you know, local stuff, we've, we've done some work where we'll actually go to the field and look by local. I mean, um, not just the state of Missouri, but kind of continental U S we've, mm-hmm. I've sent my students to Nevada. That's one of our most recent kind of field sites that we've been working on. Um, and we'll bring them back. We'll transport them by car. We'll, you know, ship them, whatever we need to do, um, to get them back. That's not really the a big deal. But it, it, from that point, it's really what is this material that mm-hmm. we're looking at and what are the questions that we want to ask? Um, so a lot of these, the, the preparation is relatively straightforward. It's, it, there isn't any. We just expose the fossil as best we can. Um, a lot of these are flat compressions, so we just break the rock open where mm-hmm. the fossil is. Um, and then we'll analyze it by various analytical techniques to get uh, composition or um, to, you know, to understand a little bit about the rock. We'll look at trace metals in the rock. We'll look at um, what's actually preserving the fossil. If it's something that we can do further characterization on and it's not a museum specimen that we can actually destroy, then we can do things like um, destructive analyses, like um, looking at the isotopic signatures of whatever the minerals are that preserve it or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of different methods in our toolkit that we approach um, these things from. So does, so sometimes the sample comes first and sometimes the question comes first. Yeah, right. So a lot of times when I've been working with other people and that have samples that they'll send me, they have a question in mind and they, they, I don't, I don't know why they come to me, but they do. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But they um, typically it's. Well, that's great that they come to you. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I think, I think it's because I have a lot of experience with, um, expensive toys, um, mm-hmm. if you will, um, big microscopes and, um, things like that. <laughs> um, so they know that the, the scopes that I have access to and things like that, that, that we can get the work done that they want to get done. Um, I'm more of a methods guy than anything else. So it's, it's more about how we analyze the material. Um, so they'll, they'll send things to me for specific reasons. Um, they want us to, to look at it with our techniques. Um, but otherwise, like, um, if, if we notice something like this, this, I'll keep coming back to this trilobite story because it's cool. <laughs> um, that actually just happened because of a field trip. We were on a, um, uh, Kevin Shelton in my department was leading an economic geology field trip, and he showed us a couple of areas. Economics, not, this has nothing to do with fossils. It's looking at ore deposits um, hmm. in southern Missouri um, because we have one of the largest lead mines in the world. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's big. Um, but we were looking at, uh, a bunch of outcrops, uh, at the surface and, um, we, he, Kevin had showed us this area that was heavily bioturbated. There was a lot of, um, uh, wormy trace fossils. Um, and John Huntley, another paleontologist in my department found one that had a rusificus with it. And a rusificus is a trilobite scratch. Oh. Um, so then we went back down to that field locality and mm-hmm. collected a truckload of stuff, brought it back. And I mean, 80, 88 samples, I think is what we had. And Tara went through and numbered all 3000 some odd traces that were there oh and measured gosh. them. And, and, um, it, it's cool. We, we came up with a really cool story, I think. So I, I guess, um, this might be a really basic question for you. Uh, but Totally outside of my realm of understanding. How do you find a fossil that you haven't broken into yet? Well, so a lot of times, like the the type of material that I work on a lot is uh, this carbonaceous compression style of preservation. So when we find shales and and siltstones and things like this, really fine grained rocks, um, you just split along bedding planes to look for fossils. Um, so you, a lot of times, like my PhD work in, in China, um, this, uh, at a site called the Galjashan, um, a lot of that material is hosted in siltstones, and that's what we would do in the field for weeks on end, um, climb up to where the outcrop was. It would take about two hours to walk, um, and then we would just pull out shales and, and silts and, and sit and break them open. So people... Oh, we wow. had certain people that were working on pulling them out. We had other people working on splitting them. I was measuring the section. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it, a lot. Of, it was a lot of fun, um, but it, it took a team of people. We had people blowing up areas of the the hillside with dynamite. Um, <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> uh, 
Um, dangerous. That sounds fun. fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like it's it's literally we just sit and split over and over and over until we find things. But other things like um, the Maison Creek, which my master's student Stephanie is working on now, mm-hmm. um, those are housed in siderite concretions. So those it's an iron carbonate, um, mm-hmm. and those are really, really hard to break. Um, but you know when you find one of those concretions, you have a pretty good chance that there's a fossil in it. Mm. Um, so these there are these little kind of oblong balls of, of iron carbonate. Um, but yeah, those you how people get those open, honestly, is they put them in a bucket of water and put them on the roof during winter. So you get freeze thaw cycles. Oh, um, that break <laughs> oh them, my gosh, crack them that's open. genius. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's, so we've borrowed a bunch of that stuff from uh, university of Illinois recently, mm-hmm. hundreds, hundreds of samples um, because it, it, that's, that's where the localities are in Illinois um, as well as that one of their, their state fossil is from that lo- one of those localities. Oh wow! The Tully monster. Oh, that's a great name. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've, cool I've fossil. Seen, recently, there's been some studies. There's been on a lot. It. On yeah. It. So we're we're trying to you know with Stephanie's work, we're trying to kind of come up with a, a better um, the model for this type of preservation hasn't really been described since the '80s. Um, we've done some work recently with a collaborator of mine in, in Canada. Um, one of his students was working on this, but we were looking at a couple of different localities to see if the model that she's kind of developed makes sense with what we're seeing. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, those are the kind of things that we do. It's, we try to figure out the progression of this. I gotcha. There is something that we were kind of thrown around before you came into the studio today, and I'm not sure if it aligns with your research, <laughs> but maybe you can give us some insight into it. Um, so DNA in fossils, how in the world do people deal with that? Uh, they don't typically. Okay. Um, it, DNA breaks down really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so the likelihood that you have it available in fossil materials, especially really old things, is next to nil. Okay. Um, now, there have been recent reports of really incredible, it's another exceptional preservation um, of dinosaur tissues that um, within bone, there are actually stretchy, still lifelike blood vessels, which is wow, that's unbelievable. Insane. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, still, the likelihood that those would have anything um, extractable is mm-hmm. probably next to nothing. Um, so I'm never going to have no, a Jurassic there's Park. No, it's really hard to have <laughs> Jurassic Park. That's the... We just crush your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, but there are a lot of people that work with, with genetics as well to understand the fossil record. And they, they typically use a technique called molecular clocks, um, where you assume that um, effectively that the... the changes that occur to DNA occur at, with clock-like behavior. They occur at a kind of a um, specified rate. Um, and we can look at genetic differences of things on the planet today and backtrack to where they should have diverged in the history of life. Oh, that's um, super cool. Yeah. So, but those are, those are, those studies are calibrated on the fossil record. So mm-hmm. we, we have these points. A, a great example is Archaeopteryx, right? Everybody knows Archaeopteryx. It's somewhere between bird and dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a that's a really good point to to look at a divergence. Um, you know, you, you pin your clock on that, and yeah, all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's outside of my wheelhouse, but that's um, but it's certainly something that, that people do with genetics on and kind of incorporated with the fossil record. Hmm. Cool. Wow. So, how do you? Um, so you mentioned briefly about uh, some of the instruments that that you guys use to to measure the uh, fossils' properties. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about um, some of those instruments? Because I don't think when I think about instruments, I think about you know the ones that I use for my research. But obviously, <laughs> it's different. Well, I think of a violin. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you what do you use? I use uh, gel electrophoresis. Okay. Um, I use uh, Raman spectroscopy. I do too. Oh. Anything that's a that's a compositional characterization tool is typically uh-huh. what we use. Um, so things that I commonly use: uh, scanning electron microscopy. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to look at um, microscopic scale features. Um, 
that, you know, it might give us some kind of indication as to what the organism is that we're looking at. Um, there are a lot of peripheral tools with scanning electron microscopes that we can use as well. Um, energy dispersive spectroscopy, for instance, is pretty common on an SEM. Um, so that is a way to look at what the material is actually made of elementally. Um, we also can use, I've used focused ion beam electron microscopy as well, uh, which is, a, uh, it's built on an SEM platform, uh, but it has a second beam, not just an electron beam. It they typically have a gallium beam. So when you fire a relatively heavy ion at the surface of your sample, you can actually mill away material mm. in a patterned fashion to, to get a sub, you know, a view of the subsurface. Um, uh, so it's we, kind of like very delicate very, etching. Very, yeah, very fine, controlled excavation of your sample material. Um, we do that. We have done that. I've done that with fossil feathers. I've done that with microfossils that are 2 billion years old. Um, you know, all kinds of cool stuff um, that we've been able to look at using those. We actually just got one on campus too, so that's that's fun. Um, so I've got more feathers that have come my way that I need to look at soon. Oh, that's really cool. Um, but uh, other than those, like um, micro CT is becoming really big. Um, it's X-ray computed tomography. Uh, effectively, you can think of it like a CAT scan, but for things that are much smaller, um, where you can get down to submicron scale resolution of three-dimensional volume uh, imaging. Uh, and that's completely non-destructive. Cool. Yeah. Um, that's becoming really big in paleontology with the push towards digital paleontology, like mm -hmm. where I can scan a fossil that we have and I can send that model to somebody and they can print it out with a 3D printer and have a replica for their own labs so that, that when you're teaching paleontology, you can look at those and say, this is what it looks like. Um, and this is how it functioned or whatever. Um, yep, so it's really, is, this it's is what really it looks cool. like cause we made one right, right. now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, wow. but yeah, awesome. it's, it's, mm -hmm. you know, when, when That's you have great. a limited supply of material, this is, it's a really great way to, to get replicas to people. Um, wow. But yeah, so or you can that's, just ship them in just a regular envelope. Yeah, right. Traveling <laughs> right. And across a pond, it yeah. doesn't matter. It's cool. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but yeah, we, uh, SIMS also, secondary ion mass spectrometry. I use that quite a bit. Um, there's one at WashU that I've been using. Um, and that's for, for isotopic analysis. But yeah, it, it kind of, it, it again, it depends on the material and what the questions are that we're asking as to what tool we would use. Um, you know, I don't, I don't like to, to just throw material at a tool and hope it gives me something. I, I, I want to have a question in mind before I do that mm -hmm. because these things are expensive. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you pay for time. And <laughs> so you want to make sure you're going to get some usable data if you're, if you're paying for it. I really love the idea that it seems like your science is done in a lab as well as in nature. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's... One of the things that we're doing um, a lot more of now as well um, is experimental taphonomy. Um, and it's, it sounds weird, but it is exactly what I think I, I mean it is. Um, so is that like you, something is becoming a fossil we're and you're trying yeah. to mess with it? We're <laughs> trying to make it a fossil. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, taphonomy, again, definition being what happens from the death of the organism to when it's a fossil. So we take animals and we kill them and it's terrible. Um, but they're, you know, they're things that no one cares about like worms. Um, <laughs> we're not, we're not trying to fossilize monkeys. Or anything. It's, um, we, uh, we, it's appreciated. <laughs> yeah. No, no, nothing, nothing with a vertebrate. You, know, it's, okay. you don't have to worry about it. It's nothing cute. Um, <laughs> I can, I can tell you also from our department that, uh, the, um, and non-vertebrates are much more flexible in terms yeah. of what you can do without yeah. getting permission from anyone. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we, we buy like um, bait worms uh, from oh, fishing stores. Perfect. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the, the ultimate goal of selling those is they're going to die anyway. So we, we just do it in our lab. Um, and then we, we try to, we watch the decay process. Hmm. Um, when, when it becomes unrecognizable, for instance, is a very important point. Um, because if it's, if it's lost all of its biologically classifiable features, then, you know, we, we don't, we 
we can't tell what it is in the fossil record. Mm -hmm. So that's, we know that if it loses all of its features by three weeks, we know that it needed to be preserved within that time uh, or something needed to happen to slow down or impede decay um, Hmm. from happening. Um, And more than that, though, too, we we try to actually get them to mineralize, which is not easy. Mm -hmm. We control the chemistry of the environment to do it. That's really cool. Yeah. It It stinks. It's a a terrible smell. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought, uh, you meant, I thought you meant, like, it stinks because, like, it never works. No. So you have, like, to try, keep on trying and keep on trying. But. Well, there's that, too. I mean, <laughs> it, it stinks because it does work. It's, yeah. It stinks because, I mean, it, these things are decaying, and it's a, just right. a terrible. It, it's the uh, room of death. You walk in, and it smells like animal death. It's really kind of <laughs> gross. Um, but we, we try to contain everything in, in mostly in an anoxic chamber. So it's... Mm-hmm. Um, try to slow down the decay process. So it's like, you know, the first chapter of a book and you know, the final chapter of the yeah, book. Yeah. And we're trying, trying to, to fill in the pages. In the middle. Yeah. yeah. Mm, so cool. it's, you know, it's, we, we commonly talk about the, the taphonomy as kind of writing the fossil record. It's mm. the, the mm. process that does that. Um, mm-hmm. That's so cool. And then we try to read it from the other end, so, but it's tough. It's, there are a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can imagine any little thing in the fossil that changes it. Yeah, yeah. So, like, one of the things that we're concerned about, most recently from experimental taphonomy work, um, some folks have shown that you get what we call stem slippage, um, where diagnostic features of an organism, um, if they're, like, you know, for instance, frilly bits on a worm, things that are small little hairs that go away quickly, if those aren't preserved it might look like something that's more simplistic or older mm. than what it actually was in life. Um, mm. So you, those are those are types of questions that we need to be concerned with to try to reconstruct all of this. All of this, at the same time, too, <laughs> all of this is just knowledge for knowledge's sake in some, in some sense. It's We're just trying to understand the history of life and how we got here from mm-hmm. these beginnings. Um, so, you know, it's... but. The, but I think there are some important parts of it. We can we can think about how um, animals have reacted or you know not reacted to major perturbations in climate, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are types of things that we can kind of pull out and figure out what's going to happen on the planet today. Yeah, that's and, very important for yeah. our current experiences. Yeah. That's I know those are bad words. We don't like to use climate change. <laughs> Well, as scientists, we, we know. Yeah, so we, we have one last question uh, that I think you segged into it very, very nicely. But <laughs> I guess rather it's, it's, it's a two question that one will, will probably lead into the other one. So um, what do you think the future of the field is, of your particular field, and do you think people should go into your field? I do. I do. Um, I do. I'll answer the second one first um, because I'm always looking for students. Yes, people <laughs> should um, should come into my field. Um, it's a it's a small. I mean, n- not just. I mean, my group's relatively small, but it, it's a small community um, professionally, kind of all over the place. That people that study these types of questions and in, in the time frame that I typically focus on. Um, so I think we need more people to, to help answer these questions. So, yes, I agree. People should come into my field. Um, in terms of where I think it's going, honestly, my opinion, being more of a methods person um, than a field person, it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lab jockey more than anything. It's, um, I feel like the, the future of the, the field is as these analytical approaches improve, our resolution on the record also can improve. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to be one of the people that's helping push that change. Um, you know, it's, uh, we're, we're building a lab right now in my department that is going to have two instruments that hopefully are going to help well, one for sure. The other one, hopefully, um, that are hopefully going to help direct this in, in, in that direction. Right. Um, where, we have really super high resolution analytical tools um, that we are using 
predominantly to analyze fossil materials. Um, so I think that that's that from my perspective, that's the future. Um, we know, I mean, we've been all over the planet. We know not me personally, but paleontologists in general, we know where fossil sites are. Other advances in the field require new discoveries. And I think that the, the tools that I use have the, the capability of contributing to new discoveries by analyzing fossils that we've already known about for a long time. Um, so I think that that's, mm -hmm. that's a big part of it from my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, and I would, I certainly would encourage anybody with, with any kind of interest in paleontology uh, to come talk to us. We have, Mizzou right now is actually a really cool place to study paleontology. Not 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 because of me. Um, we well, you're have, pretty cool too. But a little well, bit of that too, right? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> we, we we have a lot of paleontologists on campus. Mm -hmm. It's something mm -hmm. that, that isn't really well broadcast. I don't think. It's hopefully what we're doing. We're literally um, broadcasting. But we have three paleontologists in the in the geology department. Myself, John Huntley, who's paleoecology kind of more modern stuff than me um although we've 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 interacted a lot recently and collaborated on a couple of projects where my interest and his interest kind of overlap um and then ken mcleod who's a paleoclimatologist he uses microfossils and fish otoliths and scales and things like that to help reconstruct past climates um the chemistry of those materials mm -hmm. Uh, and then we have Casey Holiday in the med school that does, um, you know, early crocodilians, which is really cool. That's their vertebrate folks over there. We're all the invertebrate people over in geology. Um, but I think as a result of that, Carol Ward, too, who does really cool things with early hominids. It's There are a lot of people on campus that have these interests that I think um, students coming in, graduate students coming in especially, can take classes from these different people with these different expertise and make a really cool, well-rounded uh, paleontology academic program. Um, so yes, yes, study paleontology and do it here. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, we had with us Dr. Jim Schiffbauer from the Department of Geological Sciences here at the University of Missouri. We're gonna go on a short break and we'll be back soon. All right, welcome back to The Big Electron here on KCU 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening. We're talking about paleontology and fossils and, you know, cool stuff. Or old so we cool think. stuff. <laughs> old cool stuff? Cool old stuff. Cool old stuff. I don't know which oh, order those should go in. I don't know either. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Just as a reminder, we have with us Dr. Jim Schiffbauer from the Department of Geological Sciences. And he's going to tip it on, on, onto our story <laughs> yeah we'll see how 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 good we are with this <laughs> he'll be rescuing us from the inaccurate stuff you would hear Please. from us otherwise but but he mentioned briefly um when he was talking about he mentioned that they do um you know a wide range of, of fossils that cover uh, all over the place um and some of them are actually here in missouri and um there's really uh some really cool interesting little tidbits of, of paleontology in Missouri that, that I think are worth uh, mentioning about. Because um, some of these areas are actually pr pretty close to, to Columbia, which is where we are, so. Very cool. Yeah. So so where do we want to start? Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> I would like to know about the state dinosaur. Is that the right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was going to be a closing line, but sure, let's start with that oh, one. one We're so, so cool. organized here. <laughs> so in 2004, mm -hmm. um, a dinosaur uh, was, or a dinosaur that, of, okay. In 2004, um, Hypsibima miserinesis. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> was designated as a state dinosaur. Where, where are we seeing where this? Is oh, right there. <laughs> All over there. Okay. Um, oh, I see. Hypsibema. Hypsibema missouriensis. Oh, I may be wrong on that. <laughs> that's pretty, that's Wait, pretty I, good. I'll, I'll, I'll authorize. I'll, I'll, I'll approve that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I know nothing about dinosaurs. <laughs> I, I took Latin in high school. And that's, oh, very that's cool. Latin. Yeah. So did I. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I have I have no further comment. I... <laughs> okay, um, so this dinosaur uh, is a plant-eating dinosaur. 
um, that was, uh, it's one of the few official state dinosaurs uh, that were discovered, uh, the bones of this, uh, of these particular species were discovered in 1942, um, which was later in the area at, it's called Glen Allen in Missouri. Uh, and it's uh, the area, it's called the Chronister Dinosaur Site. Um, so some of you that live around the area may have heard about. Um, and actually some of the uh, the bones that were found in that site are at that Smithsonian Inst- uh, Institute uh, Museum in D.C. So, you know, it's kind of, so, it's kind of cool. So this is like a, a dinosaur hangout site. Uh, like you have a bunch of fossils collected in one in one spot. Is that the idea? Uh, a <laughs> bunch of dinosaur fossils in that area. I think. That, okay. That's what it sounds like to me. That that sounds pretty neat. So uh, apparently, and I'm saying this based on the magic of the internet, uh, this is down somewhere near the boot heel of Missouri, um, where it <laughs> meets sort of the the beginning of the hills and so on that eventually becomes the Ozarks. So it's sort of a boundary between two. Two areas, and you can probably find all sorts of cool stuff in that kind of place. So, sounds like we should go hunting for fossils there. Well, apparently, in general, Missouri has a great place for fo- is a great place for fossils because we have so much diversity in, I guess, rock formations, mm-hmm. and it's a great place to find marine fossils. So I think that's pretty cool. Because cool. we're like inland, so <laughs> it's not what I where I expect to see marine well, like fossils. Millions yeah, of Missouri's years about, ago. As, yeah. about as inland as it gets now, but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, during the Paleozoic, you had um, there, a very large portion of Missouri was underwater, mm-hmm. um, so you, you have quite a few. I mean, through where we were studying in, in um, southeast Missouri, so that's St. Francis area. Um, near the St. Francis Mountains. St. Francis Mountains are really, really old. They're, they're Precambrian, um, over a billion years old. And then you have 500 million year old rocks right on top of that. Uh, so you have a really long time where nothing was really deposited there or you've eroded it away. Um, so that area where we found all of these cool trilobites, trilobite traces, um, there are trilobites from the same formation, but in a different locality. Um, you know, that was a shallow sea right up against the St. Francis Mountains, which were effectively islands in that sea. So it's kind of cool to think about what it was like 500 million years ago. Yeah. Well, it's kind of, I don't know. It's got me thinking about when, I guess this is the whole point of when things were where. So like when did, when were mammals in water? So would we find mammals? Like, mammals weird... generally aren't in, in water. Right. Well, I mean, except for ones like whales that have sort of evolved from land-based creatures. Exactly. That's what I'm kind of wondering. Like, when did that happen? So where would we have to be to find, like, a whale fossil and things like that? That's what this makes me think of. Oh. That's where I'm Probably going. a while after Missouri was yeah. not at <laughs> sea anymore. Unless so. I place a whale fossil in Missouri. But well, if you find a whale fossil in Missouri, tell somebody about it, please. That would be incredibly be, fascinating. Well, here's here's an example. So in 1983, uh, the St. Louis Museum's uh, Albert Cox. Cox? How's the name? That's the name. Uh, he worked at the St. Louis Museum. And he uncovered fossils east of the Osage River, mm-hmm. which is pretty close to us that were later identified to be the ground sloth mylodone, which is an extinct ground sloth that used to live in the Patagonia, which is in South America, Hmm. um, until about 10,000 years ago. Wow, that's pretty recent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is that... I didn't know there were ground sloths. (laughs) That's kind of (laughs) terrifying. Those things are horrifying. I mean, they're cute as babies, but when they're like adults, they look like death. They used to weigh. <laughs> well, here's, I have no comment on this at all. What is it? Here's, here's even, something even better. Uh, they used to weigh about uh, 1,000 kilograms, which mm-hmm. would be 2,205 pounds. Mm-hmm. And they were three meters long. That sounds awesome. <laughs> I, I wish I wish all our, our listeners could see Anahita's face. That sounds they have right sharp now claws. as we discuss massive sloths. <laughs> uh, it is not uh, 
I mean, were they fast also? Could, like could fast I, zombies kind like, of thing? Is that what could I not outrun about? them now? <laughs> <laughs> they had long and sharp claws. Yeah, that's not bad. Which makes them think that... Oh, never mind. Um, something. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Is that true? Did, did they? Or did you make that? No, no, no. They did. They did. To, no, no, no. They did. They did have oh, long okay. and sharp claws. I don't believe her. I'm just kidding. <laughs> So um, for anybody who feels like hunting fossils in Missouri, uh-huh. I, I found a, um, a little, what, you, what should be in your fossil hunting toolkit? So of course that depends on what kind of rock you're working on, according to this. So if you have, <laughs> so, so feel free to disagree with me. Jim is giving us this look of like, what? No. <laughs> so for soft layered rock, um, the only tool needed may be a putty knife. To split the layers. Yeah, maybe. So that's what I mean, you were talking about before, that you would yeah. just, like, shave off layer after layer. Yeah, it's a lot of times we, we do it with rock hammers most of the time. But, I mean, yeah, putty knives will work, too. If it's really friable, you don't want you don't want to beat on it with a hammer. Mm-hmm. So it's something that will break apart. So then for hard rock, such as limestone, a large chisel and a three- to four-pound crack hammer are a must. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you should always, of course, wear gloves and eye protection, especially if you're using a hammer. Um, nah, give or take. And then don't use a regular hammer because it may shatter, <laughs> which I would not have thought of. Wait, so. You would have gone out with a hammer from like that? Ace Hardware. Yeah, where yeah, else am I going to yeah. get a hammer from? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, I mean, we, you buy a Metal? rock hammer. Um, so how so is like, that different? It's, it's um, hardened steel. Okay. So it's uh, it's a bit more rigid. It's not brittle. Hmm. Um, it's not going to break when you hit something like a rock with it. Um, bricklayers' hammers work too. Um, anything that's masonry um, related will typically work. Um, but a lot of times when we when we go out, we will buy rock hammers, um, specific rock hammers that have like a, a flat back end, so you have a chisel on the back end okay. and a hammer on the front. Um, other people use pick hammers. So the back end is a pick, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it's and that just depends on what you're doing. Yeah, in the rock. yeah, what what kind of rock you're dealing with? Okay, that is definitely going to be the name of my new metal band, uh, Rock Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and also, so, it sounds like pretty important tool to make sure you're you're dealing with the right material. Yeah, and not having it just be destroyed by your efforts. Or, so these tips are from the Eastern Missouri Society for Paleontology. And the last tip they have is that once you find a fossil, to protect it, wrap it in newspaper, huh. which makes sense. That's a, the the Eastern Missouri um, Paleontological Society. It's a good group. They um, they have meetings in uh, St. Louis, usually at Washington <laughs> University. I think once a month. Um, I had a I gave a talk out there not yeah. too long ago. There were, it was a really really great group of people. They were engaged and and very interested in, in what we were doing. So, so again, um, a great reason to come to Missouri yeah, yeah. for paleontology. If, right. And if you're, I mean, if you are interested, even from the kind of uh, a collector standpoint, um, you know, recreationally collecting fossils, that group is a good one to, to get in touch with as well. Hmm. Okay. Very neat. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. Um, and thanks so much, Jim, for being here on the show. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. You were listening to The Big Electron here on KCU 88.1 FM. We'll be back next week. Until then, have a good week.